So today is about understanding Matthew and introducing Matthew and talking about why we want to look at this book. Now, I could give an overview of the whole book, which might be helpful, but I thought it might be more beneficial if we just talked about why we want to study this book and, and give you a little bit of insights to kind of pull back the curtains into the preaching team and say, now, why did these guys pick this one, right? Because that affects all of us. We all are here for the long haul, no matter what they do. So how do we do that? Well, we always want to preach the whole counsel of God. We're always looking. We don't want to neglect any book. It's not just in someone's hobby horse. Uh, but we also want to make sure we're asking the question, what are the most important needs for Grace Baptist Church today? And so last year, a year ago when we started this, it was pretty easy to say, you know, uh, when, when we're in crisis as a church here or, or whenever there's a transition, the book of Ephesians, which talks about God's plan of the church and how a healthy church works, is a pretty easy, good, good, good choice. The same with the pastoral epistles. Again, we're talking about the church, the church and how does the church function and how do we relate to one another. And then summertime came and we decided, you know, James is a really good practical book that doesn't have a big theme that goes throughout. It just is kind of different passages in different weeks. And so when people are here or they're gone, that really kind of fits well. But now we come back to this, to the fall, and we say, now, now where are we going to go? And, and we haven't preached an Old Testament book yet, but we're also sensitive that this might be the series where a new pastor, we're hopeful, this is a series that a new pastor might finish. And so, you know, you got to be careful then. Well, how do you, what book do you choose? Do you, do you choose Song of Songs? Well, that might be hard to hand off, you know, first-time guy. Or even Ecclesiastes, that's kind of difficult. My, my vote was Leviticus, but they said no to that one. So, so that's kind of how we ended up with Matthew, because there is no book which is in the New Testament which is closer tied to the Old than the book of Matthew. There are 15 times which it, it directly quotes this happened in order that it might be fulfilled. 60 times it quotes the Old Testament. Hundreds, literally, of times it alludes to and refers to and echoes that book. In fact, if you want to think about Matthew, think of it like this as, as one of those big uh, rolls of, of, you know, towels at the kitchen. You, you, you take off the plastic covering, you take a nice big white roll, and you dip it into a five-gallon bucket of water, and we'll just, we'll just put some blue food coloring in the water here, okay? And you put it in there for 10 seconds, and you pull that big thing of towels out. What's it going to look like? It's just going to be sopping wet with that blue stuff. And, and as you touch it, it's going to squeeze out even more. That's like Matthew with the Old Testament. It's just everywhere, and everywhere you squeeze it, it drips out more Old Testament, right? So in a lot of ways, what part of the reason we're going to study this book is because it, it does this for us. Let me see if I can put it up here. We're going to study because it traces the background of the story. And so it's going to pull all of that Old Testament teaching about Messiah into the story. But also this, number two, it's going to reveal the hero for us. Right? This, is, this is a big focus, not just on the teachings of Jesus, but on the person of Jesus and show us what he is like. And then finally, it's going to do this. It's going to point us to the next steps with that great commission. So in some ways, you can think of Matthew as kind of a, a do-it-all book because it's not Genesis, but it reaches back to Genesis, right? And, and, and it's not the book of Revelation, but it points us forward to our task until then, right? And the center link here, the story of Jesus, kind of draws it all together. So we, we hope, we plan right now to study this book all the way through at a pretty good pace until we get to the end on Easter Sunday of uh, 2022. 
So that is our plan. So let me, let me walk you then through uh, these big themes because he doesn't just do the background in the beginning of the book. He traces the background of Jesus' uh, uh, birth and life and death all the way through the book. We're going to see the person of Jesus, him revealed all the way through the book. And we're actually going to see this statement about the next steps and being a disciple all the way through the book. So let me just give you a little bit of a glimpse to these three big ideas, and then I think it will help you as we move through each chapter. So let me talk here, first of all, about the background of the story. So we're going to begin where Matthew does with the genealogy. Now, this also is going to double as a, a preview for next week's memory verse. So <laughs> you think I'm kidding. I am, I am. Uh, we're going to take a little bit different approach to the Scripture memory this time. We're going to do uh, fewer big chunks and more little chunks all the way through the book. Um, but this one really, honestly, if we did do that, there's a lot more gold here than you would suspect. So here's where Matthew starts. He starts with this idea of uh, the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Now, that in and of itself may not appear to be such a genius move, but it absolutely is. And here's why. I just want to give you this one example of the background and the way Matthew draws these threads in. And here's why he does it. He starts this book because it might not ring any bells for you and me, but for Matthew's original readers, that would absolutely ring this bell in a really loud way. The book of the genealogy of mankind, Genesis 5.1. They say, well, that's kind of interesting, but is that really a big deal? And the answer is, oh boy, is it. It really is. So let me show you why. Because the background to this statement, the book of the genealogy of mankind in Genesis 5.1, just speaks volumes, and here's why. Because when we go back to the original sin in the garden, when Adam and Eve first eat the apple or the forbidden fruit, God has an answer, and he's going to speak to Adam, he's going to speak to Eve, but first of all, he's going to speak to the snake. And what he's going to say to the snake is, I'll put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. He shall crush your head and you will bruise his heel. Now, this is interesting because he doesn't speak to Adam or to Eve, but to the snake. Why? Because it's of primary importance. The snake has caused the trouble. In order to solve the whole problem, this is the primary answer. Now, to make sure there's no doubt about it, I'd like to chart it out here. Satan is the one he's talking to. Satan, there's going to be conflict and enmity and war between you and believers. And between your children, her children and yours. Now, this is where you have to give a little poetic license. These are not literal children, but the blue offspring here are unbelievers. Jesus speaks this way about the Pharisees. You are of your father, the devil. And then one of these, singular, he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. So what you learn here from this very first statement about Messiah is this, that the solution to everything is not in Adam and Eve, but the solution is in a snake-crushing human male. This is what's all important. And that's why, that's why, as you take a look at what happens next here, we can move ahead in our slide, you take a look at what happens next in chapter 4, Eve shouts out this, Eve became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I brought forth a man. Now, I don't think she's just happy to have a baby boy. In the context of the whole thing, what she's thinking in her head, I think, is this, right? It is 
Uh, let's, this thing is not being happy with me. Let's go there. Thank you very much. Go back. Well, I think what she's thinking is this, that Cain might be the one. Maybe Cain, if he's not the seed in the end who's going to crush the head of Satan, at least he's this one and God has given us a, a, a savior, or at least the, the chain to a savior. But of course, as you watch the story go, what happens? Well, as it turns out, Cain doesn't crush the head of the snake. He crushes the head of his brother. As it turns out, he is a murderer. He's on the wrong side, and Cain actually belongs over here because he is of his father, the wicked one, 1 John chapter 3. And in fact, there is enmity with Abel, whom he kills. And so you begin to see this whole thing is really not just a story about brothers not liking each other. This is the story of the Messiah, and you see it unfold. And what happens immediately here in chapter 4 is we go on to an, an, a little genealogy here of Cain. And we, we go down through some names we don't recognize, but then we get to this guy named Lamech, who, like Cain, is a murderer. And he's really, really boastful, and we think, oh, this, this is terrible, what's happening here? And the answer is, he's simply filling out those names. And it is absolutely coming true, and we've got a whole big line of blue, and at the end of that you think, oh, is there any hope at all? And at, right at the end of chapter 4, God says, you know what, there is. Here is the hope. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed me another offspring instead of Abel. So that we're clued in right here at the beginning, oh, there's a Seth, a guy named Seth, and he's going to take Abel's place on that chart. And additionally, at that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. There were some people who were really faithful and trusting of who God was, which then leads us, right, to Genesis chapter 5. And what you've got in Genesis chapter 5, the, begin, the book of the genealogy of mankind, starts with Adam and then goes to Seth, goes to Noah, another good guy we know, to a guy named Shem, and all the way down to Abraham by the time you get to Genesis chapter 11. And so what we have going on here is this. We're filling in the right-hand side of the chart. Now, you say, why all the mess with genealogies? Is this Ancestry.com, the ancient version? And the answer is no. It's not, oh, look who my relatives are. That's not it at all. We know that the only hope for mankind is in a snake-crushing human male. And we keep tracing that line down and down and down and down so that when when Matthew then begins his book this way and his readers understand that the book of the genealogy of mankind traces that from Eve all the way down to Abraham and then Matthew picks up the book of the genealogy of Jesus and in verse 2 he starts with Abraham and carries it all the way down to Jesus. What he's saying is he's gathering all of that theology in the Old Testament and bringing it together and saying, you know what, what what Moses began, Matthew finishes. What God was starting there in Genesis has come to fulfillment here in Jesus. And it, he just draws all this stuff together. Now, you might be looking at that and say, well, that's cute, that's nice. But I'm already a believer. You're just preaching to the choir. I, I, I believe Jesus is Messiah. And what I want to say to you all respectfully is, do you really? I mean, do, do we really? believe that? Let me just give you a very simple and perhaps even silly explanation, okay, or illustration. When I was a kid, my mom made me brush my teeth. I didn't want to do it. I didn't like it. I got out of every chance I got. Then I got a little older, and I met a man who didn't have very many teeth because he had 
cavities and he'd lost his teeth and then he had to get dentures, but the dentures didn't fit and so chewing was painful and he eventually lost weight and his health was in trouble because of his teeth. Now, mom never told me about that. She just said, brush your teeth. But once I began to get a firm grasp on how important teeth were, no, my mom didn't have to tell me anymore to do that. I had, I had taken that into my own heart, and, and then I made my own decisions. I, I, whatever mom and dad did, I knew what I was going to do. That's exactly, this is exactly, right, what Matthew is trying to do here. Matthew is going to show us in literally a hundred different ways Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. And what he hopes to accomplish in all of our lives is that we will be so convinced of it that it'll click in our hearts that you will say, oh my goodness, the entire Old Testament was pointing to this one. And now he's here. And if he really is the Messiah, what am I going to do with him? And the answer is, when he comes and says, follow me, you say, let me drop the nets. And that's what, that's what this book is about. He's, he's going to take, if I can put it this way, is he's going to draw all these threads from the Old Testament and he's going to weave together a tapestry that looks like the portrait of the Messiah. And after he's all done weaving it together, he takes it and he shows it to us, shows it to his readers, and they say, oh, that's Jesus. And Matthew says, exactly. This is exactly the one to whom it's pointed. So that with that certainty, with that conviction, that this is who he is, then we say, I'm ready to hear what he has to say because I'm ready to take in everything he has to say. I'm not going to do this with a critical eye. I'm going to do this with an accepting eye of faith that loves him and looks for him and, and, and takes him in. And, and Matthew is going to do that, pulling those Old Testament threads all the way through the book from beginning to end. Right? The second thing he's going to do is this. <clears throat> he's going to reveal the hero. Now, when I say that, I mean... Obviously, not simply that he's going to show us the teachings of Jesus, but he's going to show us, even more importantly, who Jesus is. And I want to take about six quick examples here to show you what I mean. The first one is this, where Jesus heals a leper. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. Now, if you look in any typical study Bible, it'll simply say, Jesus has power over disease. Okay, that's true, he does. But there's so much more going on here. Let, let, me, just, let me just try to talk about, walk you through this passage. The first thing I want you to notice is Matthew's beautiful word, behold. And I love the ESV because it translates that every time, and that's a good word. It is a word of astonishment. Uh, if, if Matthew had had the, the, the great privilege of watching Gomer Pyle as a child, he would have used the word Shazam, right? Or, or if he were to put it in more contemporary language today, what he would say was, you are never going to believe this. And actually, you, you may think I'm kidding with you, I'm being a little bit loose here, but, but actually those are really good words to use, and you can insert them here every time. And so what Matthew is saying is, hey, you're not ever going to believe this, but a leper came up to him. Now you might say, what's unbelievable about that? Well, here's what's unbelievable about that. That is that a leper didn't just come up to people all the time. We see them on the pages of the New Testament, but most of the time they're hidden in the woods. They're hidden away from everyone. They can't be close. And so it's worth a big behold to say, this leper came right up to Jesus. 
But that's not the end of it, because the end of it, the next part, it says, he kneeled right before him, and Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Now, let's put this in context, okay? Just imagine, just imagine, use your imagination, a global pandemic, okay? I don't know if you can do that or not. <laughs> imagine a global pandemic, and you're right in the height of contagiousness, and, and a friend comes up to you and says, oh, man, I don't, I don't feel very good. I think I got a fever. And they get right up to you. They're not six feet away. They get right up to you, and all of a sudden you see they're, they're, they're winding up for a big sneeze going, <gasps> now, they're right in front of you. They're winding up for sneeze. They don't have a mask, and they don't, they're not going to turn away. What are you going to do? You're going to retreat as fast as you can to get away from what you expect is going to be a pretty slimy mess, right? Because you want to do that. Now, here's the thing. That's exactly what's going on here. Leprosy is no different than this kind of thing. To get this close is a, is a, a dangerous, unconventional violation of social protocols. And he comes right up to him. And what does Jesus do? Jesus does not back away. Jesus stands right there. The man kneels in front of him so that in order to touch him, all Jesus has to do is just this. And he touches him. He touches him. Not afraid. He heals him. But here's the thing. When you think about this man, he probably hadn't experienced human touch for months or years. And Jesus reaches down and touches him. It's just the most amazing. I don't know, let me ask you this. What kind of Jesus do you see here? And I look at that and I see a Jesus, not just with power over disease, but a Jesus full of human compassion and warmth and emotion. Now, let me take you to the next one. The next one is this, the faith of a centurion. When he'd entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to appealing to him, Lord, my servant's paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said, I'll come and heal him. But the centurion said, no, I'm not worthy to have you come. Now, let's, again, put this in context. When you read that, you probably think like, like I do, oh, look, a nice centurion. Well, that's an oxymoron. There isn't any such thing as a nice centurion. Let, let, me, let me, not to be too provocative here, but shock you, in, in, in today's language, uh, a, 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 a Taliban general came to him. Does that put a different spin on it? Because that's how you feel. You say, well, this is a man of faith. Well, that's true. He's coming to God. But the truth is that his station in life and his position, he is the enemy-occupying force. And this centurion comes to Jesus. And notice that there is something missing between verse 6 and verse 7. The centurion says, I have a situation at home, and my servant is suffering terribly. And there is something missing between verse 6 and 7 in polite discourse. Do you see what it is? I don't mean to be too vague here, but do you see what's missing? Jesus says, I'll come. What, what, what did the centurion not ask? The centurion did not say, would you come to my house? That really should have been there in polite discourse. He says, hey, I have a situation at home. Would you come to my house? And then Jesus would respond to it. But Jesus doesn't even wait for the invitation. You see how incredible this is? The, the, and and when, when he does respond that way, the centurion backs down and says, oh, I'm not, I'm not worthy. I, I wasn't asking that. Why? Because he knows the protocols. He knows that you, you can't even find a Jewish person who would want to go to a centurion's house. And Jesus, without even an invitation, says, I'm there. I'm ready to go. 
And as it turns out, he does not go. He heals him from a distance. But the point is, he was absolutely willing and eager and ready to go. Now, I ask you, what kind of Jesus do you find here? And I think back to our study on James about the impartial nature that he wants us to have. He doesn't want us to play favorites. Does Jesus play favorites? No, he's an impartial one. But even more than that, he is the eager one. Have you ever, have you ever worried about going to a professor because you needed something or going to a boss because you needed something and you said, man, I, I just don't want to do that because I'm not sure how they'd respond. I don't know if they would be upset with me or disappointed with me or just treat me rudely and, and I don't know what kind of response I would get. Or even more importantly, have you ever had that response with God himself? And you said to yourself, I, I, I feel like I've not been walking, living for the Lord. I've been away from him, but I feel so guilty about it. I don't know if I could even go to him. I don't know what response I would get. I beg you to look at the story. Before he even gets the invitation out of his mouth, Jesus says, I'll come to your house. I'll be there. I want to be with you. I want to love you. I am here for you. I am available. And I am not a standoff God. I am eager to be involved in your life. Try this one on for size. Number three, Jesus heals Peter's relative. Yeah, he does. When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. Now, I just want you to know that there are other times in the gospel, I won't go there now, but there are other times in the gospel of Matthew where there is sort of a semi-famous person that we would know, but he never even identifies who they are. Like the other gospels will say, oh, it was Mary or it was Martha. And Matthew just ignores it because he doesn't want to focus on the person. But he tells you exactly who this is. He didn't just say some woman. He says, you know, that was Peter's mother-in-law. Now, why does he do that? He's discipling Peter, and maybe he knows something about Peter we don't know. Now, I'm kind of going out on a limb here just a little bit, but he does tell us it was his mother-in-law. He loves her. He touches her. He heals her. He says, see that, Peter? See how much I love your mother-in-law, Peter? Do you have any trouble with her, Peter? You know, a Christian man... A disciple of mine loves everybody, especially those people that might annoy him or tend to annoy him. And I don't know what Peter's relationship with his mother-in-law was, but after this, I bet it was different. Try this one on for size. Fourth example, Jesus heals a paralytic. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. I love, again, the tenderness of this. Take heart, my son uses family language and then talks about forgiveness of sins, but here's the big payoff in this passage. The scribes and the Pharisees were looking and said, oh, this man's blaspheming. Now, this is the fascinating part to me, that Jesus does not simply um, stop. He doesn't heal this person privately. Uh, he, he, in fact, he, he almost goes forward and advances into the fray. And so he says, looks directly at them and says, well, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And I'll bet it just, I'll bet it just made those Pharisees and scribes so mad they didn't know what to do. But the beautiful part I see about Jesus here is this is a provocative Jesus. This is a courageous Jesus. He does not back down. Does not back down. If you're going to become a disciple of Jesus, this is the kind of character we want to have as well.
He's not out there to stir things up unnecessarily, but boy, he won't, he won't sit back when he needs to. And, and he's, he, he stirs it up here for sure. Take a look at this next one. Jesus calls Matthew. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. It's one of my dad's favorite verses because my dad was a tax collector. So I, I learned about Matthew as the first internal revenue agent when I was in my household when I was growing up. But that really doesn't quite say it for what it is because the, the truth is here that the tax collectors were really the bad guys. I mean, they really were. Now, I'll probably get myself in trouble here, but that's okay, it's just us. Has anybody here watched the Chosen series? If you haven't seen that, you ought to see that. I'll probably get in trouble for that. But for my money, I just love that show. And it's, of course, the story about Jesus and his early years with his disciples. And we're into the second season already. And Matthew and Peter don't like each other. Now, it's not so much on Matthew's part, but Peter, Peter just can't stomach that, that this Jewish man has betrayed his people and worked for the enemy, and it takes him a long time to get over it. So when we have a tax collector here, you have to understand how unconventional this is for Jesus. I mean, if, if someone had done polls, you know, if the other disciples had done internal polling, they would have said, uh, Jesus, we've been uh, uh, sampling the crowds. <clears throat> and uh, as it turns out, uh, 98%, oh wait, no, 100% do not approve of tax collectors. If you want to run for Messiah, it would be very unpopular of you to choose this man. And Jesus says, I want that one. I want that tax collector. Why? Because we're all like tax collectors, as you'll see here in a moment. Because then he goes on this, then he says this, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus' answer is just genius. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Now, when he does this, he's absolutely setting up those Pharisees. You understand why? Because if you know your theology, you know the story is, let's see, only those who are sick need a Savior. Let's see who's sick. Answer, everybody. But what he's doing here is he's giving them a chance to think of themselves as well. So he, he gives them a, a, a crisis moment where they have to say, oh, well, he eats with them because they need him, but of course we, uh, we don't because we're righteous. And in doing so, they condemn themselves. Every time Jesus comes and he speaks, he's got something deeper going on. I don't know how we want to say this. I want to say if Jesus is clever, he's smart, he's ingenious, whatever it is, but it's like, oh, wow. Did, did you just hang yourself on that hook, you Pharisees? Did you go away admitting to yourself and to others, oh, I think I'm okay? And you don't need him? <laughs> you made a choice, right? It's just this is a beautiful story, the way Jesus interacts here with the people. And then one more. Jesus foretells his death a third time. This occurs in chapter 20 of the book, which is uh, just about at the last week of Jesus' life on earth. And so he tells the 12 on the way up to Jerusalem, because we're, they're just we're getting really close to Jerusalem. And he says, the, the chief priests and the scribes will condemn the Son of Man to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, and they will spit on him, and they will flog him, and they will kill him. 
and after three days he will rise. Now, there's a lot of things to say about this. The first is that if you look at the order of those things which Jesus says here, they are a perfect outline of all that's about to happen in the next seven chapters. So it speaks to Jesus knowing everything he needs to know. He knows exactly what's going to happen to him. He goes ahead and he does it anyway. And that, that's an important part of the lesson. But this is the most explicit statement he's made, and it's just before Palm Sunday. And he says, look, this is, this is all going to happen to me. And what's really significant in my mind is this, that both Matthew and Mark include this next, what happens next directly after this is this. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you, what do you want? She said, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Now, do you catch what just happens here in the story? I mean, you talk about lonely. Jesus is lonely in the middle of the crowd. You, you, you go to a doctor and you say, uh, you, you get your best friends around you and you say, I just went to the doctor and I didn't believe what he had to say, so I went for a second opinion and a third opinion and a second and a third opinion. They all say the same thing and I'm just going to reveal it to you here real quick, guys. I have about a week to live. And your best friends look at you and say, oh, well, uh, can I have your coat? And that's, that's, this, is, this is the best they can do. They don't even want to hear about this stuff. They just want to say, what's in it for us? And at this moment, Jesus' heart must be absolutely sinking. Because it's the absolute fulfillment of Isaiah that says he's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And is deeply lonely in the midst of his best friend's who don't care. Have you ever had friends like that? Have you ever had something really important to you and you shared it with friends and it's just like, they didn't even hear it, they didn't even get it, and, and you're hurt. And you say, are they just in it for this? How do you respond to those friends? Do you lash out at those friends? Do you get angry with those friends? Do you become passive-aggressive and just leave it alone? Do you reject those friends? Do you replace those friends? And those kind of things happen to us all the time. What does Jesus do with those friends? And the answer is, he just answers them patiently and continues to love them until the point where they say, we were so stupid, we're so sorry, we're not even worthy to be your friends. And Jesus says, no, now you can be better friends than you ever were before. He is patient, he is steadfast. He is a discipler of people who don't deserve it. When we look at all these stories about Jesus, they give us a sense of what he is like and who he really is. And so that's why I say in the second thing here, it reveals the hero so that we will love him and want to follow him. And finally, the very last part, the reason why we study Matthew's book, is he points us to the next steps. Because it's in, in this chapter, this is probably one of the clearest statements, of course, of what we call the Great Commission. Jesus says, after his resurrection, he calls the twelve together in Galilee and says, I want you to go and make disciples. I want to teach, you, teach them to observe everything I commanded you. Now, 
that great commission is, is a great wrap-up and a great send-off. But what I don't want you to miss is that this is not the first time they've heard it. And what I mean is this. When you go back and look in the book, you begin to realize that the first three or four chapters are all about Jesus. He doesn't do anything in them. They're just about him. When Jesus shows up on the scene, the very first public act in this book is he calls disciples. Very first thing he does. As soon as he gets out of the wilderness and, 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 and overcomes Satan in the temptation, he comes out and he calls disciples. And so he calls uh, uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John and he makes them his disciples and they leave their nets and they follow him and then he begins to teach them because what we see next in the book of Matthew is something which makes this book entirely unique and that is five major teaching discourses, big blocks of rich teaching. And what's significant about it for us is that every one of these are centered on the disciples. So the Sermon on the Mount, the disciples come to him and he teaches them. Matthew chapter 10, he sends the 10 out on mission and he teaches them what to expect. And then the parable of Jesus, he teaches them relationships in the church. His disciples came to him. Matthew 24 and 25, his disciples came to him privately and said, what are the signs of the end of the age? And so he teaches his disciples. He's actively discipling them here. What are they about? They're about these things. Matthew 5 through 7 is the inner righteousness of the heart which every disciple has to have. It's not just about what you do in outward actions. It's the inner motivation, convicting as can be. Chapter 12, he talks about how to witness. Now, when you go out, you're going to be rejected here and here and here. Don't worry about that. You keep on going, and whatever it costs you, you keep on going because this is your job to tell about who Messiah is. And then what, what do you do when nobody else or a lot of other people don't respond? Well, even if people don't respond, there are reasons for it, but you continue to value this above everything else, this message, this gospel. Well, how do we treat each other? Well, you value every person as I do. And, and at the end of the age, what are things going to be like? Are you going to come back? And the answer is, well, things are going to get really bad, but you endure and you be faithful till you get to the end. So that what you've got here in this book, well, let me put it this way. When we get back here to the very end, and he says, make disciples and teach them everything that I've commanded you. You know what he's talking about? Those five discourses, right? Here's what it is. What you've got in the book of Matthew is a virtual divine manual for discipleship. Jesus has discipled his disciples. We've watched them grow. We've watched them progress. We've watched him be patient with them. We've watched him love them. And we've also watched him teach them very explicitly major doctrines and major ideas about how to be a disciple and to make other disciples. Now, let me ask you this. Have you ever wanted to be discipled? I hope the answer is yes. And what this book is about is discipling us. Has anybody ever asked you to disciple them? Or has, have you ever heard that call where we ought to disciple others and you say, ah, I, I, don't, I don't think I could do that. I don't, I don't know how to do that. I, uh, this is it. If you want to learn about what's important to pass on to other people, that's what this book teaches us. This is a divine manual of how to be a disciple and how to disciple others, which gives us our marching orders until we die, until Jesus comes.
So let me summarize what we've got in this book, why we want to study, why we pick this as a preaching team. And the answer is, first of all, he traces the background of the story. Why? Because he wants us to trust in Jesus so wholeheartedly as Messiah that there is no question about whether or not we want to follow or not. He is Messiah. I don't care what other people are going to do. This is what I'm going to do. Number two, he reveals him as the hero so that we would adore him as beautiful. Jesus is not simply a mass of teachings. He's the perfect God-man. He's the most beautiful, attractive, courageous, compassionate, loving, forgiving, faithful person you'd ever want to know. Number three, he points us to the next steps, how to follow him as a disciple and how to learn to disciple others. So I pray that this book would have its work in our lives and that you would look forward to the teaching from this book as God begins to work all those things together in our lives. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to look into this book more deeply. And Lord, not just because it's a way to make us smarter, but because it's a way to make us more like Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand the whole story of Old Testament and New and how Jesus fulfills it all. Lord, let it, let it change our hearts and convince us. Lord, help us to seek after him as disciples ourselves. And then, Lord, not to keep it there, but to be ready to do it for others as well. I pray your blessing on this church. Lord, I pray that you would do abundantly, exceedingly above all that we could ask or think according to the Spirit who works within us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.